Well, there's no shortage of predictions regarding the end of the world. Just a quick peek in Wikipedia lists over a hundred predictions of apocalyptic events, and they span from 66 AD all the way to thousands of years in the future when the sun is supposed to crash into the earth. But probably one of my favorites is a gentleman named Harold Camping. Harold Camping was a Christian radio broadcaster, and he predicted in 1994 that Judgment Day was coming. And he predicted it first in early September of 94, and then he revised his prediction. It was later in September, and then he revised it again till October 1994. Uh, well, we know how that played out. So he took a hiatus, and then he came back with a vengeance, and he predicted with certainty and specificity that Christ was going to return. It was going to be on May 21st, 2011. May 21st, 2011. And he used his platform, his radio broadcasting, to get that word out. And it was actually picked up by the mainstream media. And there was a lot of buzz and a lot of reporting about that. And he even had billboards made that spoke to that. And so I've got a picture of that billboard here. Save the date. That's right. You thought you got some wacky save the dates. Here's a save the date for you. Well, so May 21st came around, and then May 22nd came around, and then a few days later, another billboard went up in Greensboro, North Carolina. And this billboard was a little different. <laughs> oh, gotta love that, right? That was awkward. Uh, because we know, right, no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. You've heard that from this pulpit, right? We are not to be fixated on the exact date. Date setting and speculation about the date, it's not a productive use of time as Christians. So what should we be doing? Well, our passage has the answer. We should be getting prepared for Christ's return. Now that doesn't mean that we should be building a bunker or stocking up on canned foods. We need to be living right in light of Christ's return. For we don't want to be ashamed when he returns. First John chapter 2 verse 28 says, And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We want to be confident when Christ's return. We don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to shrink back. We want to be found doing things and thinking things and aligned with things that won't make us ashamed when Christ returns. And Paul's going to give us some specific instructions of what we should be doing to be prepared for Christ's return. So let's take a look at that. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5, chapters 1 through 11, not chapters, verses 1 through 11, 1 Thess 5, 1 through 11. So if you want to pull out your Bibles or your phones, we can follow along. We're going to reference that passage a lot today. So let's read it together, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then, said therefore, right, let us not sleep as others do. It's like a spiritual sleep, right? Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For Christ has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're living or dead, there's a different type of sleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So Paul is responding to the question that the Thessalonians had about what's going to happen to their dead relatives, the dead believers. Had they missed out on the coming of the Lord, were they going to be at some disadvantage to them? And he responds to that question by saying, you have no need, no, excuse me, he responds to that question at the end of chapter four. So the end of chapter four in Carlin's teaching, he talked about the doctrinal issues of what's going to happen to those dead believers. Now he's going to follow up on the actual date. He's going to follow up on the actual date. And in verse four, he's going to say, you have no need to have anything written to you. Right? He says that, and he's not being snarky, like I'm not going to tell you. He's just reminding them that you don't have any need to have anything written to you because we've already talked about this. Paul's been out with his companions. They preached in first in Thessalonia, in Thessalonica, in first and second Thessalonians. We see that referenced. So we know that they have had this information shared with them before. And scripture echoes that, right, that we don't need to know the times and the seasons. The sequence of events of the end times are not for us to know. Not the sequence, the date and times are not for us to know. So in Acts chapter one, verses six and seven, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, the disciples say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they wanna know what's gonna happen, how's this all gonna go down? And Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So we've been instructed many times, right, that we're not gonna know the exact time. But don't confuse that with the fact that there isn't a time set, right? There's been a time that's been fixed for this, right? God has set a time. It's on God's eschatological calendar. We're just not to know what it is. The knowledge that this will be a surprise, that Christ's return will be a surprise, is more useful to us than knowing an exact date. That's why the thief in the night is a helpful illustration, right? Because the thief's arrival, it's sudden, it's unwelcome, it's something that we need to be prepared for. We need to be watching and expect the unexpected. It's tempting to want new information, to try and fix a date, to try and get some new teaching or something that would help us to figure out a date. But what we need more than new teaching or new information is we need to obey what we already know. I think we can all agree on that, that we have a lot of teaching and we really need to focus on obeying what we know. 
And Paul's reminding the Thessalonians of that, reminding them that they know this already and they need to obey it. So they need to be watching and expecting Christ's return. So point one on your outline is expect Christ's unexpected return. Expect Christ's unexpected return. Expect the unexpected. Because there will be no signs preceding that, right? As pre-tribulation, pre-millennialists, you might remember that term, right? We believe that Christ can come at any moment. We're not waiting for the Antichrist to come first or waiting for the period of tribulation first. Christ can break into our world at a point in space and time that he wants, just like his first coming. Now, we might feel or we might live like we're not going to see that in our lifetime. I think if believers did an honest heart check, we might think, you know, I kind of feel like I'm going to see Christ after I die. And that's kind of what I'm planning my life around. But if you've walked with Christ for any amount of time, you know that his timeline and our timelines often don't line up. And what we think and what we plan and what he has in mind are two very different things. So we don't want to assume that we have the luxury of time. Right? We need to get busy being prepared now. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not right with Christ, then you need to stop right here. And you need to turn and trust in Christ because the rest of this message is not going to be relevant. So if we're not to know a date, then why are we even studying eschatology? Right? I mean, you've spent the last two weeks trying to wrap your mind around some pretty incredible truths. Well, because Jesus' second coming is going to be as important as his first coming. We need to study eschatology because it's God's plan for us. Right? We need to study it because it becomes a motivation for us to share the gospel, to holy living. We need to study it because the return of Jesus Christ is the great hope of the New Testament, right? That's the hope in our holiness and hope. And in our passage, we're studying the event that's called the Day of the Lord, the Day of the Lord. And that's something that's referenced throughout Scripture. It's in Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. Sometimes when there's sufficient context, it's just called the day or that day. And it is not a 24-hour day. It's a figurative day. It's a period of time that's going to come after Jesus raptures his church. It's going to start ushering in the seven-year period of tribulation and continue from there. And it's a time period where God is pouring out his wrath on the world. And we have three illustrations. We have three metaphors that our passage uses to describe how unexpected it's going to be. And we see the first one in verse 2 where it's going to come like a thief in the night. Right? A thief in the night, sudden, unexpected, unwelcome to people that aren't watching, that aren't prepared. And certainly this is well understood in the early church where there's not the level of security that we have today. Right? There's no street lights back then. There's no ring doorbell cams. Night was a very dark time, very sinister time. And so the thief coming at night was certainly unexpected and certainly unwelcome. And we see that thief as a metaphor for Jesus' return in other places in the scripture, including Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and discussing 
the parables to, to explain his return. In Matthew 24, verse 42, he says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of that night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And then he continues with this rhetorical question. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Who's found prepared and ready? Blessed is that person, is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So again, we have the same themes, right? That Jesus' return, it's unexpected. The master comes back to the house at an unexpected time. And we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to be found doing what we're supposed to be doing. And the key verse is at verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find doing so when he comes. So Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. The, number, the second illustration we see also in verse three is it will come at a time when the worldly sentiment is that everything's all good, right? That there's peace and security. But it's really an illusion of peace and security before brutal invasion. And there's a biblical reference here that you might recognize, certainly the early church might recognize from the Old Testament where Jeremiah complains about Judah in Jeremiah chapter six, verse 14, where he says, they have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Or perhaps in Jesus' teaching, you remember this in Matthew 24, a little bit earlier in the passage, and he discusses what's gonna happen. The coming of uh, the Son of Man is gonna be like in the days when Noah and the flood that people are eating and drinking and marrying. They're completely unaware of what's gonna happen and then the waters are gonna sweep in. And he ends that with, so will the, be the coming of the Son of Man. So it will be completely unexpected at a time when people are feeling comfortable and confident in their peace and security. And there would certainly have been a, a cultural significance that the Thessalonians would have understood because in that time period, they were living under what's called Pax Romana. So it was a time of peace and security in the Roman Empire, there are very few wars. And that was kind of a, the motto, the slogan of the Roman Empire was peace and safety. So that it would be decidedly contrary to have the apostles preaching that there was this great destruction coming. It would really get people's attention. Like here in Orange County, where we feel like we're the, some of the safest cities in the United States, right? We have some of the safest cities, but yet we know that there could be sudden destruction coming at any time. And those words, sudden destruction, they have a very ominous tone, right? It's events that are unwelcome, that have terror and anguish associated with them. Well, our last illustration in the end of verse three is that the day of the Lord is gonna come like labor pains in a pregnant woman. And if you've ever been pregnant or seen somebody who's pregnant, you know that those labor pains are not fun, right? But yet, you know, certainly in the early church days as well, if you were pregnant, you're gonna have labor pains. It was a sure bet. So the day of the Lord is coming. It's gonna be painful, but it's coming is sure. Well, we need to expect the unexpected. 
but it can be tiring waiting and watching for Christ's return. But watching and waiting are always linked together in the Bible. Watching and waiting. And it reminds me of staying up, waiting for my teenage drivers to come home. Maybe you remember this time, your kids just get their license, they're not great drivers, they're out late at night. My husband and I would be up waiting and listening for them to come home. Sometimes we'd be lying in bed and we'd be so tired, just fighting the sleep because we wanted to hear that car pull in the driveway. We were listening for that footfall, that click of the doorknob, because we didn't want to fall asleep. We didn't want to miss them coming, or worse, if something happened to them we didn't know about. So we were fighting to stay awake. And so it is, as we need to wait expectantly for the day of the Lord, for Christ's return, we need to be watching and waiting expectantly. We don't want to miss out on the fate of what's going to happen to those in darkness, right? When reading our passage, don't miss the end of verse 4. But the fate of those that are not following Christ, that are not believers, they will not escape. They will not escape the wrath of God. And that's an emphatic verb. It's categorical. There will be no alternatives. That will be their outcome. Well, as we've said earlier this morning, right? What a motivation this study has been for us to up our game for evangelism. And when we think about what the destination of these children of darkness, what really lies in store for them, it should motivate us to share the gospel. Because when their temporal trials are over, their eternal sorrows will just begin. So we don't know the timing. It could be a thousand years from now, it could be a hundred years from now, it could be tonight. But what we do know is it's one day closer today than it was yesterday. That it's 2,000 years, give or take, closer now than it was when this was written. So we need to be prepared. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Right? That's Romans 13, 11. Salvation is near. We shouldn't be surprised because we should be anticipating it. And we should be rejoicing because we are not destined for wrath. Verse 4 says, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Right? We shouldn't be surprised. We're not in darkness. We're children of the light. Right? Verse 5, because you are four, which means because you are all children of light, children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So here we see a contrast between darkness and light, right? between us and them, between we and they. And we know that those terms are often referred to salvation, right? Christ is light and sin is darkness. Believers are children of the light. Followers of Christ are children of the light. Those who are not are children of darkness. So we, know, we are not to be surprised. We are to be prepared. We are to be awake for Christ's return at any time. So point two on your outline is prepare for Christ's imminent return. Prepare for Christ's imminent return. An atheist comedian came up with a slogan, Jesus is coming, everyone looked busy. 
and he had it on bumper stickers and on t-shirts. And it was supposed to be a dig at Christians. But yet, in reality, there's truth to that, right? Jesus is coming. Everybody should be busy. We as Christians like to say, what do we want to be found doing when Christ returns? We want to be doing the right things. In scripture, preparedness is not based on knowing the exact date. It's imminent, right? Christ's return is imminent. It can happen at any time. The judge is standing at the door. At any moment, Jesus can break into space and time at his decision. In a word, he can do it. It's not a far off event that we're gonna see coming and be able to get prepared. It's not like a hurricane that we can see out on the horizon as it moves closer in. Not at all, it's imminent. You might have heard the doctrine of the imminence of Christ. His return is imminent at any time. And from our passage, we're gonna look at what we should be doing to be prepared. So in verses six through 10, we have some very specific instructions about what we should be doing. And from those verses, we're gonna pull out four subpoints on what we need to do to be prepared. So let's look at verses six through 10 again. So then, right, that's the word therefore, linking these two thoughts before, what's come before this and now, we get two imperatives. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Again, this is not sleep as in physical sleep, this is spiritual sleep. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're living or dead, we might live with him. So verse six has our two imperatives, our two commands right out of the gate, right? Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. And that word sleep, that's translated sleep, is really a spiritual sleepiness, a worldly moral apathy, a spiritual indifferent. It's not physical sleep. We all know we need physical sleep. We need to rest our bodies. But this is a spiritual sleep. And it's different than the word that's translated later down, asleep, which is the word death, to be dead, right? So you know there's been a lot of references to sleep. This is a, a spiritual sleepiness that we're talking about here. We shouldn't be going through the motions, right? We shouldn't be asleep on the job. So that's our letter A is don't sleep on the job. Don't sleep on the job. We don't want to be caught napping when Christ returns, right? That day is going to come suddenly. And those that are spiritually sleeping, that's behavior that is characteristic of children of darkness, right? That's not for us. We're children of the day. We are to be awake. But we can get complacent in our Christian life, right? We can sleepwalk through our Christian life. We can start feeling comfortable, think, I'll get busy about doing what Christ commands tomorrow. I'll get prepared for his return tomorrow. We can kind of sit on the couch, take a nap, take it easy, kind of go through the motions, not really putting any effort into it. We can be kind of lazy, lounging Christians. There's no sacrifice. There's no going the extra mile. 
staying the extra hour, spending the extra dollar. There's no add a pat. We can be on autopilot. It reminds me of a Tesla driver. Sorry, Tesla drivers in the audience. This is just an illustration. And you can get into your Tesla and it's all comfortable. You can kind of sit back, put that autopilot on and just take your hands off the wheel and start cruising down the freeway and just sort of relaxing, not really paying any attention. Maybe you've seen those videos of Tesla drivers who are watching movies as their car is hurtling along the freeway. Or there was one that went viral that my kids showed me of a Tesla driver sound asleep, head bobbing along as he was driving down the freeway at, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. Certainly the possibility for going off the road or hitting another car seems much more likely with that. Well, when it comes to our Christian life, we should not be on autopilot, right? We need to have our hands on the wheels. We need to be engaged. We need to be paying attention. Because our Christian life isn't static. And we can't rest on our laurels. We can't relax thinking that we've made enough progress and we're all good. We need to be awake. We need to be alert. We need to have all systems go. So letter B on your outline is be alert, right? And we get that from the second half of verse six where that second command is we need to be awake. We wanna be alert. We wanna be alert for Christ. Right? The thief return is an unwelcome surprise to those who are not watching, but are not prepared. So we need to be the opposite of autopilot. We need to be working. We need to have our minds engaged. We need to be studying God's word. We need to be intentional about following Christ, taking obedience seriously, and encouraging each other to do the same. When I thought about this, I said, you know what? We're really not Tesla drivers. We're more like truck drivers. That's what we are. We're truckers, right? As children of the light, as believers, we are truckers. We have a job to do. We're on the road. We're hauling a load. And you know what? We are care about that paycheck that we're gonna get when we get to our destination. That's what's important to us. So yeah, maybe it's not comfortable in my cab. Maybe it's a little smelly, but yet, you know what? I'm, I'm on the clock, I'm working, my mind's engaged, I'm prepared to do what I need to do to get my paycheck. And along the way, I am calling out to my fellow truckers. I got my CB radio out. I'm calling out the hazards on the road, right? Look over here, follow me. I think a trucker analogy really fits the bill for us. And I mean that in the best possible way. Now in Orange County, I think we'd probably rather be Tesla drivers than truckers, that I do get. But yet, as Pastor Mike says, we want to burn out. We don't want to rust out, right? We don't want to rust out. Let's burn out. So we want to have our autopilots switched off. We want to be alert, awake, hands on the wheel. And we want to have our wits about us, right? So letter C on your outline is be clear-headed. Be clear-headed. And we get this from verse 7 where it says, since we belong to the day... Right? Since we are followers of Christ, we want to be sober. And that word sober is self-controlled, right? not overtaken by anything, not under the influence of anything. And certainly it could be drugs or alcohol, 
but it's really more broad than that. We don't want to be filled with anything other than the Holy Spirit, right? We could be drunk with pride. We could be drunk with passion. We could be drunk with self-conceit. We want to be far, we want to be free from excess. It's not behavior that's suitable for the children of the day. Right? And that New Testament word sober really means sort of a figurative sense, free from any mental or spiritual intoxication. It's to be calm and collected. Self-controlled is sometimes how it is translated. Well-balanced, clear-headed, exercising restraint, free from excess. That's what we need to be doing. And how do we do that? Well, we need to live by faith, hope, and love. Right? That's what our verse tells us. In verse eight, it says, be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we need to guard our hearts and minds like an armed soldier is guarding something on his job, right? We need to be vigilant. We need to be standing at attention. We don't want to be drunk or asleep on the job. If a soldier is drunk or asleep at his post, that's dangerous to himself and to those that he's watching over. So we need to have that same posture, that vigilant, prepared posture as we exercise faith, hope, and love. So letter D on your outline is practice faith, hope, and love. Practice faith, hope, and love. Paul's favorite triad of virtues. And now we don't want to overthink the pieces of armor that he's associated with each of those. It's really more a military analogy to help us think that this is an offensive posture. Right? We need to be vigilant in keeping watch over our hearts and minds. And faith, hope, and love have been evidenced in the Thessalonian church. Right? Paul has commended them for these things throughout his letters. Their faith in God, their love for each other and others, and their hope in salvation. Right? And verse 9, we see, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. That's our hope. Our hope is in salvation, that God has not destined us for wrath. And that verb in verse 9, that we have obtained salvation, that word obtain is it's a done deal. It's been accomplished. We don't attain, we have obtained it. And furthermore, God's not destined us for wrath. What a great promise. So what should we be doing in the Christian life? We need to be busy about faith, hope, and love. Now, if you've had a bad week or a bad month, if you've stumbled, if you've fallen down in your walk with Christ, get back in the game, right? Confess it, repent, and get back on track because time is short. The purpose of teaching on eschatology isn't for us to fix a date, right? We're not to count the horns in Revelations or the toes in Daniel, but we are to use that to understand that we need to be prepared. We need to live in faith, hope, and love. And then we need to encourage each other with those truths. Verse 11 says, therefore, encourage one another 
and build one another up just as you are doing. Christ's return is the great hope of the New Testament, right? That's our, our hope and our holiness and hope. So we need to be encouraging others with that. So point three on your outline is be encouraged by Christ's certain return. Be encouraged by Christ's certain return. And that word encourage is the word parakleo in Greek. Maybe you've heard that used before. It was actually used in chapter four at the end. And it was translated then to comfort or to cheer. It can also mean to aid, to give help, to support, to spur on, to diligence. Reminds me of learning how to ice skate or teaching your kids how to ice skate. And they get on those skates and they're all wobbly back and forth. Maybe mom or dad comes alongside and gets them underneath their arm and kind of supports them upright and helps them out. That's what our word parakleo means, to encourage, right? To give courage, to be encouraging. And it should be a daily activity, right? Hebrews chapter three, verse 13 says, but exhort one another, again, our same word translated a little differently, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That's Hebrews three thirteen. So we need to be encouraging each other, And then the other verb we have here is we need to be building each other up. And that verb to build up is actually a construction term. And it means to strengthen. Sometimes the word is translated to edify, edification, to strengthen each other. We need to be reminding each other of the truths of the scripture, right? Mutual edification, that's sometimes called. Reminding each other of what we already know, what we know to be true. And the Thessalonians were doing this and Paul commended them for that. And so we need to be doing that as well. We need to make encouragement and edification and building up part of our daily practice here at Compass Bible Church. And certainly there's so many great ways that we can edify each other. There's so much great teaching out there that we can be part of, that we can share. Women in Faith, Compass Bible Institute, There's so many wonderful ways that we can participate in edifying and encouraging one another. We need to be busy building each other up and not tearing each other down, right? A critical spirit is not edifying. When I think about the construction metaphor of building each other up, I think about the cathedrals that were built in the Middle Ages where stones were stacked one on top of each other to build these gorgeous buildings that were bringing glory to God. And in the Middle Ages, a stonemason figured out that he could make a stone archway that would allow these great soaring vaulted ceilings in the cathedrals. If he took small triangular pieces of stone and he fit them together, the pressure of that stone pressing against each other would allow him to create this beautiful arch. And so it is with us as believers, as we build each other up, we can create something beautiful, something that brings glory to God, something that points people to God. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter three, we are called God's building, right? We're God's temple. And as we build each other up in faith, hope, and love, we're creating something beautiful. So we need to encourage and edify each other because Christ's return is certain. So let's not let 
worry and anxiety and trials of this life drag us down? Our life in scripture is compared to a hair's breadth, right? Or a puff of smoke. It's short. How many weekends do we have left before Christ returns? So if you're going through trials now, be encouraged, be heartened. Press on, persevere. Keep on trucking, as we like to say. And if we know that Christ could return at any time, why do we get so overly focused on things of this world, things that aren't gonna matter? Our appearances, our weight, our homes, our possessions, our cars, these things are not going to matter. Even non-believers, children of darkness on their deathbeds don't care about those things. No one's ever said, I wish I lost five pounds at the end of their life. How much more should we as believers be putting our focus on what really matters? Because time is short. We have an assignment here on earth. And when it's over, we're gonna go home. And we have a limited time to wrap up the work that we need to do here. So we need to get busy, we need to get prepared because we don't wanna be surprised when Christ returns. Like a bad surprise, like a pop quiz when you haven't studied. You might remember those, right? Always seemed like it was math class. You'd walk in, the teacher would say, clear your desks and put your books on the floor, we're having a pop quiz. And oh, you have that sinking feeling in your stomach like, oh, this is not gonna go well. You haven't been doing your homework, you're not prepared, you don't know the material, you think this is gonna be bad. Well, I was kind of a nerd, so I like to do my homework. So when the teacher said it's time for a pop quiz, I was kind of like, yes, bring it on. I'm ready, I've done my homework. I'm ready for my reward. And furthermore, I'm ready to see the slackers that didn't do their homework, they're gonna get their reward as well. And that might seem unbiblical, but um, having a reward for work done is actually very biblical because there will be a test for us as believers. And we wanna be prepared, we wanna be diligent students when it comes to that test. That could be at any moment, right? Christ's return could happen at any moment and we wanna be prepared. Now there are two judgments. The judgment for your eternal destination, heaven and hell, and we know as believers we're not subject to that judgment. We, our destination is secure but there will be a second judgment called the Bema Seat Judgment. You might remember this. The first one is the Great White Throne. The Bema Seat Judgment is judgment for believers that will be judged on how they have conducted themselves in this life, right? How, how prepared are they for Christ's return? And when that happens, Paul says that there will be many people who are enjoying the splendor of heaven that will suffer loss at the judgment seat. Right in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, he says this. Right, so that while we were in heaven, we can still be suffering loss because we were not prepared. There will be tears on judgment day, as a commentator writes, because of this. This loss will be reason for regret and remorse. So we need to use that to spur us on to diligence in this life, to be prepared. 
for Christ's return at any time. And 1 Thessalonians 5, it's not a condemning passage. Paul is not condemning the Thessalonians and saying, you, don't, you aren't doing this and you'd better get in the game. He's encouraging them. He's spurring them on. And so it is with you compass women. Right? We need to just encourage ourselves and spur ourselves on to even more diligence. This echoes Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. Hebrews 10, 37, that says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and he will not delay. Right? So Christ isn't going to delay much longer. He's coming, the coming one. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We don't want to be ashamed. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The end is coming. We don't want to incur God's displeasure at judgment day. We want to confidently be able to say, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, how rich it is, the treasures that lie in there as we spend the time to dig in, to know what you would have us do. And thank you that it's clear. You don't leave us hanging, Lord. You give us clear instructions of what we need to do to please you. So may we purpose to do these things. May we put them into action. May we not just walk out here um, and not make the necessary adjustments to our lives, Lord. May we expect your return at any time. And may we be prepared. May we have our wits about us. May we be awake. May we be alert. May we not be sleepy. And may we use the time wisely to encourage each other, to share the gospel so that we're not ashamed when you return, Lord. Help these ladies to have a great time in their group. Help them to have transparent sharings of where they're struggling. May there be lots of encouragement and edification that goes on. And Lord, uh, may you come soon to bring your kingdom back. We cry Maranatha, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You are dismissed.